Good afternoon, Anchor Nation. This is your host, Aaron Rollins, back again. We're doing it live at Southeast 3rd. I promised earlier that I would be reading pieces of my book for the podcast. This is a dry run, so I'm going to be figuring this out as I go. Y'all don't rip me to pieces over this, all right? I'll see you do something for the first time and be good at it. Um, I'm not going to do the preface and all that other stuff. Just going to, you know, read from the, the first chapter, the prologue. Yeah, you know what? I'm going to skip that because that's really friggin' boring. Um, yeah, people aren't going to enjoy that anyway. Uh, let's see here. Let's just go into chapter one of uh, Baron Fire and Ruin, a Shadows and Dust novel. So I took a piece of this book and I submitted it to an online forum where they collect stories and all this other stuff. And I had to title the subsection, the chapter of the book that I wrote, and I called it A Feast of Blades. These uh, chapters don't have names. Um, they're just numbered. And I'm okay with that. I'm not the type to uh, name every individual chapter. Um, each chapter takes in different perspectives. So sometimes it's all three perspectives of the main character. Sometimes it's just two but it's never just one, so uh, it took me a year, no, it took me a couple years to write. I hope it doesn't take me a couple years to read. There's been some interest at my work of people wanting to read it, and I'm just like, well, friggin' buy it. Um, and I, I did get a copy for somebody uh, for as a gift. Uh, one of the dudes I work with said that he would give me notes on it, and I was like, oh, that's a fair exchange. So he gave me notes on it, and he found all these goddamn spelling errors in it. <laughs> so I had to go back and, like, line by line, pick out bad spelling and times where I would mix up letters and fix that. And, you know, perfect books do exist, like perfect grammar and punctuation and spelling. Um, but er more often than not, you're going to find somebody screwed up somewhere. And as a reader, you're like, ha, ha. You're supposed to be this badass author, but you made a mistake. Uh, everybody does it, okay? Everybody. And don't don't come at me. It's like, well, this is your first book. You're supposed to screw it up. Everybody screws up on these things. Um, so back to the back to the book. Uh, I've made a lot of changes, and I've uploaded a new edition. I was working with someone I know to get me uh, illustrations, and she freaking fell right through the freaking crack. Um, she jumped off the edge, I should say. Oh, sorry, that's my notifications going off. She jumped right off the edge of a cliff. You know, I paid her for, for one drawing. I even was going to float her in advance on the second drawing, and I was like, I worked with a company that was going to do 100 bucks a drawing, so that seems like a fair rate. I'll pay you 100 bucks a drawing. She gives me a drawing, and I was like, yeah, this is good. Can you change this? And we had to go back and forth, and she got real tired of me trying to tweak it. But I needed it to, to be specific from a scene in the novel, and she was just... Like getting bent out of shape over all the changes I needed her to make, and I'm like, but you, you got to understand, you didn't read the book, you don't know the scene I'm talking about. Even though I sent you a piece of it, you still didn't read it. Otherwise, you would you would know what these characters are supposed to be doing with their hands, with their facial features, you know. And I, I had this whole image of how it was supposed to play out, and she just got fed up with it. But she ended up giving me a quality image, and I, I saved it. And then I was like, okay, so here's the next one. It's going to be a ship on the ocean, and the waves are crashing, and there's lightning in the background. And you don't have to color it. You know, you can just draw it out as best you can. And there's somebody out in the water, and someone else is diving over the uh, the railing, the rail of the ship to dive into the water to swim out and save them. That's a scene from the novel, and I was like, man, that would be epic if she could just draw that really well. I'm thinking more like grayscale or maybe black and white. You don't have to make it like super uh, out of your comfort zone because she doesn't really do these kinds of drawings. She does uh, anime drawings and fan art drawings. So this was pushing her a little bit out of her comfort zone. So I get why she was all bent out of shape. But I'm like, shit, man, I, I'm trying to give you a chance here. You know, this this can put your name out there. You're not going to be wildly successful. But, you know, people will see what you can do on a much broader scale. You know, it's on the Internet outside of just Instagram, which is what she uses. Um you know, I don't know how many followers she's has. She doesn't have more than 2,000. I know that for sure. So putting that out there and, you know, having people see your work, you don't have to worry about it being bad. They're not going to care about that. They're just going to care that it's in the book. And they'll see that you put in the time, you put in the work, and, you you know, they'll 
they'll talk to you about future projects. And that's my whole pitch to her is like, I'll even give you a percentage of the proceeds. I can't give you all of it because I'm actually not getting that much money out of it anyway. But I'll give you some of the money that I make off of these selling if you'll just please <laughs> do the drawings. Anyway, so that, that all fell through. And I actually, she had some stuff happen in her personal life that uh, I you know don't really talk to her much anymore. So that friendship kind of dissolved. But it is what it is. No big deal. Moving on, uh, I'm restarting my computer, so while we're waiting on that to boot back up, uh, <laughs> I had my exam today for my biology class. It was a practical where you identify muscles, you talk about their origin and insertion points, you uh, identify bones in the skull. You know, we were doing skull, neck, chest, um, and then parts of the brain and, and the spinal cord. So we're looking at, you know, all these different samples and images, pardon the background noise, we're looking at all these different images. And I'm like, you know, every morning before I drive to school, I listen to John's podcast, <laughs> JP's what? Killing brain cells, just tuning out the world and just listening to something stupid or him talking about fighting somebody. And it's something occurred to me while I was listening to it that he <laughs> he got into that fight in that parking lot that one time with another dude. He didn't get hurt, but, you know, he's trying to break something up. And I start to see why he got involved. John likes to fight. John likes to fight people. <laughs> why he doesn't like train at a gym or whatever, I don't know. I think he's one of those guys like I had, you know, a badass body once. And I, no matter what happens to me or how I age, I'm going to keep that badass body. Let me tell you something, man. I'm in school for this shit. That's not true. It's not going to work. If you had an 18-year-old body that was fit, lean, maybe had some muscle on you, or maybe you were a big boy that was you know, muscled and yoked up and you could put up all kinds of weight. Once you get past your 30s, your mid-30s into your 40s, that is all downhill if you do not work out. And even if you do work out, you've got to do certain exercises to maintain that type of body. <laughs> so uh, all that to say is that, you know, John likes to get into shit and he likes to talk about getting into shit. And I'm like, John, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> you talk about bouncing somebody's head off the concrete, or you talk about lighting somebody up because, you know, they pissed you off for one reason or another. It's like, man, okay, maybe for like the first 10 seconds, the fight starts to go your way because he's got some weight to him. But I'm telling you, after that, you're going to start sucking for wind. Your muscles aren't going to work right. <laughs> and you're going to get hurt, dude. You're, you're not as fast as you used to be. You're not as strong as you used to be. You're, you're, you're not what you used to be in high school, bro, or even in college. So all that to say, um, you know, I'm listening to that crap. And, 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 well, it's not crap. I'm sorry, John. It's not crap. I'm listening to his funny, funny ass podcast and he's talking about that stuff. Instead, I should be listening to my uh, course material for my freaking exams. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm over here getting dumber by the second, listening to JP's what when I'm going to biology. <laughs> but I need it, man. I need his podcast. He, he gives, he makes me chuckle or laugh or whatever. Sometimes it's freaking hilarious when he talks about like busting these people's heads open and stuff. Or um, his recent podcast, Neighbors from Hell, was was pretty entertaining. Uh, I mean, because we've all had bad neighbors. We've all had neighbors that suck. Like, not too far from where I live, there's a, a house known for people in it that do meth. Smoke meth or whatever. So, anyway, um, I'll spam rest call. <laughs> I turned my vibrator off, so. Excuse me, I turned my vibration off. You know, sometimes I get on these podcasts and I get to talking and I'm like, man, I need to delete that and go back. And then I realize, well, I've already been on this for almost nine, uh, 10 minutes. Ain't no way I'm doing all this from the beginning just because I screw up on one word. Hey, y'all can suck it. All right. Back to uh, Baron, Fire, and Ruin. We're going to go with chapter one and just kind of set the stage for the rest of the book. Um, if you're really interested in it, you can find it on Amazon. I just uploaded a newer edition that has corrections on a few things and a few things have been added. I really need to add in because the, the section that I added from the book to that website that was collecting them, I made a couple of changes to make the story one a little bit longer. Um, but also to include, cause it was a challenge. They wanted you to include some sort of uh, line. They gave it to you and you use that line in your story and you go from there. So I was like, okay, I'm going to incorporate that into what I already have and make a few changes. And that's what I did. Um, I'm not changing that spelling, I'm not spelling, uh, punctuation. 
It's, it's every freaking year this software changes how the punctuation is supposed to be. I, I can't stand how fluid language, modern language is. It's it's changing every couple of years. How the hell are you supposed to keep up? You know how many times they change up the freaking uh, scholastic bodies, uh, governing rules that you have to, to write your papers on? You know, I, I haven't been in school for like nine, ten years now. Uh, somewhere around there. And I get back into school where I've got to write papers, and I'm like, all these rules are different than when I went to school. And it hasn't even been that long. Anyway, back to what matters is the reading of chapter one of Fire and Ruin. Here we go. <clears throat> oh, there's background noise, man. Uh, I need a studio. Chapter one. What the What is that noise? It's like somebody dropping tools out in the road. Whatever. <clears throat> Chapter 1. In this place. Son God damn it. God damn it. I'm trying to fucking do something and I hear something like every five minutes. Is this going to work today? Son of a bitch. Excuse my language. Alright. There's strong language in this book anyway. So if you read it, you're going to read the strong language I'm using now. Um, it's not as uh, frequent, but uh, it, whatever. Here we go. Chapter 1. <laughs> In this place, silence was an elusive dream. The winds rattled tree branches as they swayed back and forth. Birds constantly called out their mating calls to their potential suitors or warnings of predators. All manner of creatures along the ground floor rushed warily from concealment to concealment, avoiding any potential hunter that might be searching for an opportune, opportune meal from above. Enticing aromas drifted onward and upward. I'm already realizing how stupid this fucking sounds. Enticing aromas drifted onward and upward on light breezes through trees, up branches, and out of the canopy. Rays of sunlight leaked through the treetops, warming patches of soft grass, giving all the foliage a rich, vibrant green shade. God. The quiet... Deep breathing of a young Rotharan Wolfgar meshed with the background noise. He was only a few seasons into his adult years, but he was well grown, with a strong pedigree. With the sun, when the sun had shined upon the ages of antiquity, what the fuck? His ancestors had claimed a powerful fortress in the eastern mountains and flourished there. In that merciless country, only the strongest survived. For his clan, this was a blessing. The weak, diseased, or frail were weeded out, leaving behind a race of resilient and hardy survivalists. Of all the places of his birthland, Sortos found the most peace here. So many miles from his home in the freezing mountain ranges, he seemed out of place to the outsider. The truth was that Sortos, what do I mean by that? I mean like if somebody were visiting there, they would think that he doesn't belong. Other, other people that are already there, they, they, don't, they don't notice it. Uh, well, maybe a few of them do, but it's, it's not common. The truth was that Sortos loved all facets of nature. Even with his heavy gray coat, he felt right at home in the warm embrace of this lively retreat. His clan thought him the most peculiar of any that... Well, that's a fucking contradiction, isn't it? Of any that lived in his mighty ice fortress with his silent and detached nature towards his own, but an affinity to the foreign. That's already found a god dang error again. Fuck! <laughs> that whole piece right there is fucked up. Sortos loved his pack brothers, however. He loved his kind and compassionate mother, his courageous and charismatic brother, and his revered father above all. He didn't always have the words to express those strong emotions. Kind of like, I don't have the words to write this goddamn book. But he never had a knack for oratory to begin with, or anything for that matter. That was his brother's strong suit. Sortos longed for the open sky, the sunlight, the embrace of a warm breeze, the constant excitement of scaling the steep peaks of his homeland, or the rolling tides of the deep waters of the ocean farther north. And every climb he was home. None in his tribe loved the earth as much as him. Some whispered he bordered on the fine line of madness, that his connection to his birthland was unhealthy. So part of that is from me. I really do enjoy um, getting to see different parts of the U.S. 
I really would love to see the U.S. on my own terms and just, you know, go wherever the hell I want to go. Um, that's not happening right now, but, you know, maybe one day. We'll see. Um, and all that to say, you know, I, I made a, a couple of comments a, a minute ago. Um, it's not that people don't notice it. It's that they just don't really give give it that much attention. All right. He's, he's supposed to be kind of like, a, you know how Wiccas are really into nature? I'm not saying he's a witch, but he's he's along those that that uh, appreciation for for nature. Uh, anyway, he couldn't disagree more. He pitied <laughs> back to <laughs> so some whispered he bordered on the fine line of madness and his connection to the birthland was unhealthy. He couldn't disagree more. He pitied those that couldn't share his love for the earth on which they slept, hunted, ate, and bore pups. In every ancient tree, he felt an indomitable will to survive. In the grainy rocks, he could feel the quiet strength they boasted after centuries of pressure and scouring winds failed to erode them. In every lake, he felt the overwhelming energies of life. The winds whispered to him in words he couldn't quite grasp and yet longed to. The mountains held the greatest lessons to be learned. After countless millennia, their towering height and size gave credit to their infinite levels of Levels of patience and unending desire to reach the skies and break through the clouds. The peaks of his mountain home were near the top of Sortos's list. There he could see the entirety of his be beautiful homeland laid out before him. His first time traveling there was with his father, and it was grueling, but well worth the journey. The winds howled at them to turn back, and snow sucked their feet down with each step in an attempt to grind their will to press forward. They were not easily deterred, and after hours of scaling the perilous mountainside, the glory of his homeland was made known to him. He had wept openly at the sight. Even now, he burst a tear from his eye. That comes from a personal experience of mine where I was like 10 years old and we were flying for the first time, and we, we took off and went above the clouds, and there's a whole story behind that, but I'm not going to get into it. We took off above the clouds, and it was just an, I mean, it was like carpet of clouds, as far as the eye could see, and I, you know, being a kid, I, I couldn't control my emotions, so I, I, I shed a tear because I just thought it was so beautiful. He was lying under the shade of the ancient boughs and leaves of his favorite tree, the Weeping Bleeder. And it, just so you know, it's hard coming up with all this stuff. All right, I had to come up with a name for everything. Uh, the Weeping Bleeder. They earned their titles from the early explorers who discovered their sweeping branches and peculiar red sap that ran in oozing rivers down their bark during the late season. The delicious sap was often traded as an exotic delicacy in the Rotharan Mountains. The game was more than sumptuous for the entire clan, which numbered high in the thousands, but a little foreign flavor was always appreciated, especially in the des desserts his mother was so fond of. Sortos was feeling the pangs of hunger as he reminisced of her baking. He roused himself from his reverie to scrounge for something to eat. The forest grew silent. As his eyes scanned the forest floor, his fur began to spike. His ears twitched. He began to sniff the faint breeze and his pupils began to dilate while he unconsciously bared his fangs. I am not alone. And he was not. In the high treetop of a distant cloud kisser tree, a vork, a vorak, a vork, a vorak was watching him. Its steel claws and tail were gouging the trees where it held its grip. Its putrid saliva was slithering down in its massive steel-lined jaw, forming tiny vines that dripped to the floor, the floor far below and onto its own body. Its grim yellow eyes glared at Sortos. It had been watching him for some time, savoring the idea of tasting his blood, bones, and flesh. The Vorak were a savage race. But Sortos, but Sortos knew not to count them as savages themselves. They were masters of metalworks, fusing their bodies to the material they excavated in their native lands. Their spines were accentuated with tall metal spikes, and their tails were covered in wicked barbs, either meant to crush opponents or to penetrate deep into an unfortunate foe. Though the Vorak lived short and conflict-filled lives, Sortos did not pity them. They were bled for it combat, conflict, and in many cases, war. Their sole purpose in life was to ascertain power through conquest or victory, and in some cases, deception. 
The Rotheran had encountered them more times than Sortos cared to remember, and he knew all too well their prowess on the field and their devilry off it. Honored enemy, I must not disappoint you. Sortos was the second son of mighty Drethal, Rotheran Packmaster, the Terror from the East, Icehammer, Lord of the Frozen Hearth, Simogus Brahm. The titles went on and on. The blood of his mighty ancestors was strong in his veins. The Rolst, the change that would forever alter his musculature, his bone structure, and his lust for combat had forced change to had forced changed upon and was ever-present temptation for his growing body. I need to read that again. The Rolst, the change that would forever alter his musculature, his bone structure, and his lust for combat, had forced change upon him and was an ever-present temptation for his growing body. It was a bittersweet blessing that all Rotharan received one way or the other. Okay, I see where I messed up. Sorry, I was having to read that again. It was a bittersweet blessing that all Rotharan received one way or another. History taught the Rotharan that the Rolst had no limits. A Wolvenok, a youngling, could grow to the size of a behemoth capable of moving mountains with his strength. But the rage would cost the Rotharan his sanity. During the dark times, while his clan was still roaming the plains of Karnos, many of the pack leaders had succumbed to the rage and the Rotharans were within inches of being wiped from the pages of history. But Bullseye, the great and powerful winged seer from the high peaks of the east, saved his kin and guided them to their fortress where they flourished. Bullseye taught his ancestors the price of the blessings the Rolfs held. Either tap into some of the limitless power and be satisfied, or dive too deep into the well and be driven mad. Sortos had only gone through Rolfs three times in his life. The first transformation was when he was very young and was a complete accident. His brother had goaded him into a scuffle and the shame at being so easily duped into tussling with his stronger, faster, and brighter brother gave rise to anger, which soon led to rage. Without any warning sign, his body grew to match his brother's and Sortos tossed Fangar aside in a rush of power and speed. He was on top of him soon after, growling and snarling into his face as he tried to choke the life out of him. If his brother had been any less trained in the intense, body-smashing art of frunge, he might be dead today. Sortos was beside himself with grief for days, and it was weeks before he could even look him in the eyes. The second time was with another Vorak like the one he was facing now. He was traveling much too close to their fetid pit, seeking the Samoza Voraga, the road to the adversary. A pack of three young Vorak ambushed him. Had it not been for the Rolst, he would not have escaped with his life. The broad trench, not bored, broad! I still find it mistakes. The broad trench that is the Samoza snaked and branched throughout the countryside to the heart of Victoria. The dank and dismal iron pit, allowing the Vorak to come and go in great numbers. Along this road, Rotharan warriors made camp throughout the year, seeking their own glory through victory in combat or from rite of passage. Even the curious Promadon warriors from the north would travel in pairs and join in battle. But their purposes were unknown, and very few trusted them. Luckily, since Sortos was still young, he found a trio of young male Vorak who were not fortunate enough to have their bodies... Oh, that confused me for a second. Follow the train of thought first. Luckily, since Sortos was still young, he found a trio of young male Vorak who were still not fortunate enough to have their bodies blessed with the sacred metals of their birthland. That battle had been drawn out and grueling for both, and it ended in a stalemate as the warriors returned to their people battered and broken. I screwed something up there. I'm making more freaking changes. The third time, the third time was the first time Sortos had taken a life. While Sortos eyed the beastly Vorak male, he began to circle to his right, searching for any open ground where he could face his foe on even terms. The Vorak were incredibly agile for their size, and they were adept at capitalizing on their environment. Sortos was out of his element in the forest but his father's clan boasted great warriors with decades of close and unarmed combat experience with every beast across Karnos. Sortos had soaked up all the fighting and survival knowledge he could from these revered legends. 
The hulking Vorak began to slide down the tree, peeling off layers of bark with his razor-sharp talons as he did so. Sortos flinched at the sight, picturing the massive abrasions the Vorak was raking into the soft layers of the tree. If his touch did not outright kill it, it would take decades to heal. His arrogance and impudence. Back. His arrogance and impudence cannot go unpunished. Sorto squared his shoulders against the beast as it landed and let a challenging growl rumble from his gaping maw. God damn it. <laughs> the Vorak responded in kind with a shrill cry of its own. He clacked his steel-coated claws against the fragile grass and slid them against his tail, giving off an ear-piercing squeal. Sortos knew that with this weaponry this one employed, Sortos knew that with the weaponry this one employed, he would be hard-pressed to come out of this fight victorious. He would have to rely on the roast. For Sortos, the process was becoming dangerously easy to succumb to. His anger, which was slow to stir, would boil over into fury. His matchmate, excuse me, his future mate, Sacha, had chastised him over his mood swings, claiming he was acting more and more like a Wolvenuk. With a fully matured Vorak in front of him, Sortos only cared about survival. His eyes bulged and turned red. Sengurn Viscoro, the red sight, had taken effect. His breathing became deeper. His legs slowly stretched on while his claws grew denser and longer. His jaws extended even further as his teeth elongated and his already thick tail developed to the width of a tree branch. His arms became more muscular, his shoulders became thicker and broader at his back, becoming bunched and rippled. His eyes almost rolled back into his skull as he roared at his foe in front of him. His bearing became so his hearing became so heightened that he could detect the heartbeat of his opponent. His muzzle also smelled the faint scent of fear. Oh no, it's too late. Much too late for you. I am Sortos, he bellowed and beat his chest with his right arm. I am the Grey Stalker, called Grimhow by my clan. He punctuated this last title with a demonstration of his namesake. You have come to my sanctuary with insolence and hate in your heart. And by the blood of my father and his fathers before him, you will flee this place or die. The Vorak was obviously shaken by such a display of raw power. But he was here now. The Vorak would not be able to live with the shame if he left without victory or even committing to a blow. I am Slorthot. Slorthot? I don't freaking know. I am Slorthot. I still bear your bite. I still bear your bite mark on my mangled spine to this day. I will not leave until I have blood for blood. He spat at the last word. And you return to your clan as shamed as I once was. Your challenge is brave, but in vain, dogkin. Vile serpent, Sortos responded. Mutant mutt, the Vorak spat back. Abominable snake, bulbous swelp, scale freak. Sortos was foaming at the mouth now. His muscles twitched in anticipation of the coming conflict. God damn it. The tail of the Vorak was slithering from left to right as he tensed his claws tightly, then loosened them. His columbine The tail of the Vorak was slithering from left to right as he tensed his claws tightly, then loosened them. His colubrine form defied logic as he moved with both grace and lethality. A mortal weapon made bone, flesh, and metal. They stared each other down as they slowly circled. The time for talk was over. With a speed that was a credit to their size and race, the two charged with eyes gleaming and hearts burning like the sun. Chapter break. Moving to the next uh, perspective. What? Yeah, whatever. Point of view. <clears throat> Damn you, Trenton. I said no. I've paid those degenerate countrymen of yours their coin, and they will not see another shiny head of his highness until the job is done. Now that is final. I don't care how much they insist. No one has the monetary influence like the Empire. If they want to give the money back and pursue other venues, then so be it. I will send the treasurers to collect the gold. 
They can explain their grievances to that lot. The courier, Trenton his name, was standing stock still with his parcels tucked under his left arm, right hand on the pistol buckle buckled to his waist. Standing tall and broad-shouldered, clean-shaven with neatly trimmed hair, he was quite remarkable in his own way. He was typically mocked for his professionalism. Secretly, his colleagues looked down on him for being a foreigner, hailing from the tropical islands of Kovni. The running joke was that he was born with a stick implanted into his ass and had followed him ever The running joke that he was born with a stick implanted... <laughs> That's why it's a joke. <laughs> God dang it. Trying to read this is hard. <clears throat> the running joke that he was born with a stick implanted into his ass had followed him ever since Bellin appointed him to his post. He had never been military, but his bearing was impeccable and the envy of all other word bearers in service to the empire. Trenton was the personal messenger. Trenton was a personal messenger and secretary for Admiral Bellin Remu Fortson II, Admiral of the Empire's Navy, which was not without privileges or risks. The scar above Trenton's eye, right eyebrow was a testament to the dangers he faced serving an imperial commander of forces. Serving an imperial commander of forces. Oh. Bellin had paced his office until he came to the window which overlooked the shoreline and opened it. The salty breeze washed over him and slowly drowned out the cloistering smell of papers, oiled oak, and leather. Bellin had hated being trapped up so high and away from the sea, away from the docks and ships where he loved to work. He missed sailing, missed the sound of pork calling, the whistle of mooring, and working the heavy lines with the deckhands. The camaraderie built there matched any of those in the infantry. On the unforgiving sea, every morning you woke up was a testament to your fortitude, and one mistake could see you plant, plant, placed in a watery grave, sinking forever in the deep. He longed for those days again, and if his plan came together, he wouldn't be doing without for much longer. A ship, a frigate by the look of it, was pulling into port. The men were manning the rails, heaving out lines, and rigging the sails. He saw a man in a heavy coat near the rudder wheel, standing tall with a saber strapped to his hip. The captain. Standing proud and alert as his men skillfully guided their ship safely into the harbor. He had that damn twinkle in his eye. A look of confidence, certainty, and youth. Rolento, he thought. So smug, so pleased with himself. The Empire couldn't catch its breath. After the Emperor's predecessor, Garta Ricorta il Adachi, the Thunder of the West, a vain but tenacious warlord, broke the armistice of nations, the Empire began to slip towards the inevitable, inevitable implosion. Inevitably, inevitable implosion. Though Bellin's responsibilities were vast, he was internally grateful for not inheriting the mess that Ricorta passed to his protege, Davine Igni Sancha Urux. A distant cousin. I gotta say that better. Devon Igni Sancho Orox, a distant cousin. Initially, they boasted a superior fighting force on land with an over overwhelming sea presence. But the, e but the eastern kings of Andros, Kovni, Pagasbrod, and Pelagasbrod had all united under the common cause of defiance against the greedy hands of Recorta. Their tenacious defense was costing the empire more than it could afford. In such conflicts, men like Rolento rose to the challenge. He had cut his teeth at sea, disrupting supply lanes and pillaging foreign merchants for their valuable valuables in the eastern seas. What? For their valuables. God dang it. Daring boldly with his guerrilla tactics time and again, he quickly garnered fame amongst his sailors. Junior officers were looking up to him. His colleagues were seeking his counsel on how best to engage the Adorosi in ship-to-ship -ship maneuvers. Andorosi, god dang it. Flag officers were requesting his ship be present in their open sea engagements. All the while, Bellin was reading reports, redirecting vessels, and sending resupply to embattled imperial soldiers along the eastern, entire eastern seaboard 
from the comfort of his office, far from the eyes and ears of those under his command. Bellin cringed on the inside. He was not getting any younger. He was getting softer, older. Every day he felt the creaks and groans of his age telling him that time was coming to retire to an estate or island and grow old and die. He loathed the thought. His hair had begun to gray along the wings and his full black locks were growing thinner by the month. Lines creased his forehead and his once taut cheeks now sagged. Even his morning routine of shaving, which once helped him feel purpose in starting his day, was growing to be more bothersome. Bellin took his seat in his high-backed fur-lined chair, hand on forehead, and refocused on his messenger. Carry on, then. Yes, Lord. The frigates, cruisers, and your beloved Emperies del Munoz had been outfitted with enough able bodies to make a two-sons-turn voyage. The fleet is prepared. At your request, 80% are ready, willing, and able to set sail for foreign shores. To humbly remind you, that is over 700 ships at the ready. Never has a I-know-well-the-stakes, Trenton. Thank you. Bellin interrupted. His eyes were closed, his hands massaging his temples. He knew this was the largest naval operation in the history of his nation. He knew this was an insane dream to pursue. He also knew the cost of failure. The Empire had grown crowded, and the war had done nothing to change that. Upstarts in the northeast were northeast were whispering of rebellion. Taxes spiked as the emperor assumed command of a fractured economy that struggled to supply the war effort. The population was outgrowing the land and crops and the resources. Expansion was an absolute necessity. The only alternative? Culling. And he would not allow that. The success of his people was dooming them to ruin. How many regiments of engineers will be on deck, Trenton? <clears throat> Man, I messed that all up. And he would never allow that. The success of his people was dooming them to ruin. How many regiments of engineers will be on deck, Trenton? Nine, sir, with one more in reserve. There will be enough left behind to carry out the orders of our imperial lord. And the Corsio, how many battalions? Eighteen, sir, along with an accompaniment of Cognian mercenaries. Well enough to repel any shipboarding should the pirates be bold enough to tackle a fleet of this size. They've made more reckless moves in the past, Trenton, of that, be sure. Bellin was referring to the daring raid of Porto de Sulla, the sunport of the southwestern coast. Nearly two decades ago, the pirates of Fulson invaded. Raid, raped. <laughs> Nearly two decades ago, the pirates of Fulson invaded, raped, plundered, and devastated this prosperous trading port. Del Sulla was a stain on the history of the empire. It was never rebuilt. Apologies, my lord, that was insensitive of me. Trenton bowed slow, slightly. Forget it, not to do about it now. So we have the citizens to fill a colony, the builders to build it, the Corsio to protect it, the ships for cargo and for deconstruction should it be needed. He paused for dramatic effect. And the able bodies to fill the fortifications we will create. When we succeed, this will establish the longest trade route within the empire. Our neighbors are all three weeks or more by sail from us, but if our merchants have not erred in their reports, then the shore we set sail for will be at the very least a half-turn from home. He paused again. His breath had quickened slightly. He couldn't remain seated. He rose to walk to his open window and gaze again at the shoreline. This was his home, but as much as he loved it here, he couldn't stand it any longer. No matter what he filled his day with or where he went, he saw the faces of his lost loved ones everywhere, mocking him, haunting him. He had grown complacent living the life of a port officer. His hands had turned from seaworthy to inkworthy. His back now ached from sitting in his chair so many hours of the day and night. He couldn't remember the last time he had honestly put in a solid day's work. The thirst for the open sea wasn't his only goal here. A half year away from the Empire, he would have two other commanding officers with him and a fleet with the troops to supply it. Bellin had spent many hours and even more coins on persuading the, com com the 
the commanders of the Corsio and the Igneri del Ritiro to support what some would say were his delusions of grandeur. Bellin didn't see it that way, however. Bellin didn't see it that way, however. Every great leader or nation began with a single man's vision and sprouted from there. Bellin could be one of those men, and his comrades were now more than willing to jump on board with his plan. Vistoli, the Corsio commander, had mentioned he had grown restless since his return, return from the war, and easily folded with the opportunity to set sail. If they made it to shore, but could not sustain a colony there, then they would return with whatever goods they could harvest from the foreign soil. But if there was, a, but if there was success, then there would be no end to his feverish ambitions, and his ambitions reached far. Send word to the envoys of my fellow commanders that I will need to meet with them three days hence to discuss our strategy and sailing plan. Send word to the Imperial Lord's office that I request an audience to update him on our status when it's convenient for him. Bellin made no move to hide his disdain in his voice. By your command, sir. Trenton slightly bowed his head and turned to make for the door. Wait before you go. Bellin rose as Trenton turned to face him, stock still with the same poise as before. Bellin took Trenton by the shoulders and squared his face to his. Trenton, this is the opportunity of a lifetime. Serve me well in this venture, and your rewards will be more than a few metal coins or a woman companion or two. You still prefer women, yes? He grinned slightly at the suggestion. Surely, my lord, jests. I realize it beneath your I realize it beneath you to recall all my embarrassments. I realize it beneath you to recall all my embarrassments, but just two weeks past you rescued me from the wiles of a thieving prostitute who yes, Trenton, I recall. Not one of your finer moments, I admit. I still haven't gotten the stink of that place from my good coat. Bellin started back to his desk, but looked again to Trenton before he dismissed him. We cannot fail, Trenton. To do so would mean not just our end, but the end of our people. Do you see that, Trenton? Before long we all grow this beautiful country, and then what? I cannot know, sir. It is beyond my capacity, Trenton stated matter-of-factly. Carry on, Trenton, and by the grace of our emperor may our voyage be fortuitous, Bellin dismissed him. By his grace indeed, sir, Trenton replied and left the office. All right, point of view shift. A jagged spire pierced a pale blue skyline, obscuring a bright orange sun that blazed down on the world below like a baleful eye. Wicked and pointed roofs raked at the soft clouds drifting by overhead, as if to reach out and tear them from daring passage not granted. Menacing statues of winged beasts sneered down on the rabble from on high a stark contrast to the noble warriors that guarded the gates on the ground. All who dared to aspire to be master of this fortress were subject to their scrutiny. All who looked upon this tribute to domination did so with wonder and fear. This was the Tower of Centurion. Upon its throne sat the Dominant, who ruled through the, that same fear and wonder, and sheer will. High in his tower... Koron, master of all the centurion, was holding council. In his sparse throne room sat three members of the Lord's closest advisors, arranged in a semicircle around the throne. Dressed in crimson robes, his simple elegance matched well with his quiet demeanor. Underneath the stoic expression was a wellspring of disdain and contempt. Koron was considered average in appearance by many. His frame, though toned and fit, was not overly imposing. He neither towered nor dwarfed his subjects. By all account, his appearance was unimpressive. I'm going to fix something. But he did not require physical attributes to intimidate others. It was his sinister expression, the wicked smirk that hid secret knowledge, eyes that could damn the soul of any that he looked upon. All he required was for his shadow to fall upon his victims. A figure remaining motionless but with great malice in his aura, stood in the shadows, patient. His sole purpose was to protect the honor of his master, and in his duty he never failed. 
A centurion had misspoken, and for that he would pay with his life. With blade concealed, he moved swiftly from the left of his prey and grabbed the centurion's throat, thrusting his weapon into his back while twisting the head to crack neck and sever spine. The poor soul never saw his end coming. The figure cleaned the blade on a cloth stashed in his belt and sheathed it, then returned to the shadows from whence he came. The body of the offender slid to the floor and settled with a wet plop. Now there sat only two advisors. The stain on this court has been wiped clean, and honor has been avenged, the shadow said. As my will endures, Karan replied. Now, my champion, heed my orders. You will gather four hundred centurions by the end of the spring. Choose carefully. You will need the best to ensure your endeavors do not fail me. Seek you the most skilled and dutiful, obedient, but proud of all your puerile. Then collect your night riders, all the fearsome mouthfield that you can gather, and any others that are combat-ready. Soon we will march to war. The master turned to an open window and gazed out towards the city his castle enclosed. He sighed as he gazed upon the sprawling castle walls. A, mom a monument to his reign as Lord of the Centurion lay before him, a living testament to his genius and focus. It was not enough. A centurion can make oaths and swear allegiance and all that honorable nonsense. They can promise you their blood, their land, even their very life, should you wish it. But no, that is not how you earn a servant, or knight for that matter. It is their will you must control. He can promise you his loyalty, but threaten his family or pay him his weight in gold and he will turn. He can promise you a trophy. But if the mark is a fair maiden or beautiful face, he can promise you a trophy. But if the mark is a fair maiden of beautiful face and figure, the opportunity to take her for his own will be too tempting, and he will fail you. No, words and promises are for the naive and sycophantic. If you want someone to serve you, you must harness their will to do so. Build it up for them or break it down for them. Either way, mold it however you wish, and you have a servant for life. Or an enemy. He turned to face his audience. Do you understand these orders if I have commanded them? Speak now, for there will be no guidance by my word once you are released to your duty. My lord, might you enlighten your servant? Bruce stood slowly, wary of the assassin in their midst. You have given me a great honor, but I cannot fathom the depths of your wisdom or greatness. We have no war here, no enemies at our gates or in our homeland. Your lordship has made that so, and for many years we have known peace as you have guided us from division and squander. Instruct me as to your will, and as you have seen before, it shall be done by my hand or any of the faithful you command. Bruce bowed with hands clasped and held to his chest as he finished. Bruce was a puerile commander, a well-developed warrior, athletic, tall, muscular, of strong jaw and thick neck with sparkling green eyes. To see him bow to Koran was an assertion of his power, his dominance. The dominant sighed and turned to face his two advisors. Victor was still seated, but bowed his head when his lord turned to face them. His eyes wandered between his two knights briefly before he spoke. Victor! Clean up that mess and remove that dishonorable wretch's history from our ledgers. Ensure that he is forgotten. I do not care how it is done. The dominant spat. Your will endures. Victor rushed to recover the body and proceeded to drag it from the throne room. Once the doors closed behind him, the dominant sat heavily in his throne with his hand upon his chin. <sighs> Bruce, be at ease. Now is the time for us to talk plainly. Not as king to knight or lord to servant, but as one to another, as kin do in their homes, for you are now in mine. Draw your chair close to mine and sit you there so that I might hide my words from those that wish me dead. He asked sincerely. The position of Dominant was a lonely title, and this one had reigned for many years. 
The members of his council were replaced often. He could not, for he could not afford the luxury of friends. Bruce brought, his, Bruce brought his chair as close to his lord as he dared and sat face to face with the one that would change his life forever. Bruce thought for a moment he saw Koron's eyes flash bright red, but brushed it off as a trick of the light. Bruce felt anxiety as he stared into them, trying to remain composed before the one who, who could have killed him at a moment's notice. My champion, if you are to keep power, and that is surely the aspiration of us all, then you must not build yourself up to a lofty tower and look down on those below. No, that tower must be reinforced to stand against the elements, to stand against aggression. Take your tower. Build around it a wall to keep away the enemy and protect what you value most within. But do not tarry there, for your work is not finished. You must have those at the wall ready to stand against the foes of your strength and success. Man those walls with all the ones who will fight for your cause to their very ends if need be. For they alone can keep you in your place of power. And when the enemy is too great and the odds not in your favor, recede from your throne and ensure you have an escape. That is my wisdom for now. So, let us move to your request of illumination. Listen carefully, my champion, for this plan of mine is known only to me and will not be repeated after this day. The Dominant leaned forward and began whispering his dark secrets of madness and grandeur to Bruce. End of chapter one. Good God, that was not easy. Finding friggin' errors all the way through it, trying to pronounce things right, and I'm messing it up the whole way. Please tune in for another chapter. Uh, it gets more exciting. This is obviously slow because it's setting the stage for everything that happens. I'm not just going to jump into what happens later on and not give you guys some uh, pretext here. You gotta, you gotta know, you know, why things are happening the way they're happening. And there's a sequel that's gonna come, and um, it's gonna explain you know, Koron's plan and all of that. You're not going to find out everything about his plan in the first novel. Spoiler alert. You're just not. Um, that's not in there. I haven't put that in there. And I'm not going to put that in there. Uh, if you have tuned in this long, I appreciate you sticking around to the end. I'll, uh, I'll keep working on my delivery and trying to make this more entertaining. Uh, last announcement, please drink water. It's getting into the triple digits in the South. Uh, please take care of yourselves. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope to see you again as we do it live on Southeast 3rd. Go listen to JP's What. See how easy that was, JP, to just throw a shout-out out there? Did not take long. Did not take long at all. You just got to remember to do it, you selfish prick. <laughs> oh, God. His stuff is funny, though. Anyway, thanks for tuning in. This has been Aaron Rollins for Southeast 3rd. I'm signing out.